as you know, we are beginning a short visit to the book of Revelation. We will not do the whole book, just the first three chapters, which I'm calling the seven letters to the churches. This one introductory message is Jesus, the church's one foundation. And I don't know about you, but I found that mission moment very sobering. I'm reminded that this very book that we are about to begin studying speaks of a character and a quality of follower of Jesus who, quote, loved not their own lives even unto death. I want to be that kind of person. How about you? Father, would you guide us as we look into your word right now? And thank you for the reminders of the joy of transformed lives that we've already had. Thank you for the reminders that we run toward the fire, not away from it. That where you are working is often very uncomfortable to us. Help us to love not our own lives even unto death. And would you strengthen us as we look at you this morning, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your holy and exalted and magnificent name. Amen. Well, Brother Keith has already read our text, and so I will just begin with the exposition. But before I do, I want to tell you that just before our son deployed to Iraq, a family friend who had spent 25 years in the military and who was a colonel at that point, who loved our son almost as much as we did, pulled him aside before his deployment put his arm around him like a father and said to him, they will try to kill you there. That's a sobering moment. (laughs) And what he was communicating to our son is, be alert, be sober. I say to you, you have an enemy that wants to see you dead. Not only, and he knows that he cannot kill you if you are in Christ, but he will try to douse the flames of your passion for Christ. And he will put things in front of you that he knows are a stumbling block for you because he knows that if you will stumble, you will discredit the name that he hates. The one that will someday put him in the bottomless pit. Until that day, he is loosed to carry out his evil ploys on this planet. We must be aware. We must be alert. The letters that are given to the churches here are given for our good, for our, uh, for our strength and stability. And I'll tell you this, the older I get, the less important are possessions and position and influence. What's important to me as I gain age and hopefully some maturity that goes along with it is that my own ability to hear his voice, to understand his will, and to engage his purposes would not be hindered by my foolishness, my bad decisions, that I would not be sidelined and unable to be used. I know that some of you feel the same way. So how do we prevail? How do we keep from getting shipwrecked in this very, very hostile world that we live in? 
I want to answer that question with a quotation from one of my favorite hymn writers, Samuel Stone. Samuel Stone wrote these words, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. With those words, I tell you that the church's victory is not in her duties. It is in her focus, her worship, the person who is the church's first love. So today we are going to focus on this revelation of Jesus who, to John, his best friend, looks completely different than any other way he ever saw him in his earthly ministry. This is the exalted Lord Jesus. And I want to begin in verse 1, which is where we ought to begin. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants. I want you to see the transmission of the book. God gave it to Jesus, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Notice the transmission. It is from God to Christ to the angel to John and to whoever reads. Now, Brother Dave, why do you bring that to our attention? Because God is a covenant God. And when you are in covenant, one of the highest priorities is communication. And God is in covenant with human beings by virtue of the blood of Christ. And he is the initiator of covenant. And he wants you and I to know what is in this book. He has communicated it. Verse 3 says this, Blessed is he who reads... Is that enough? No. And those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. The book is meant for us to apply, to understand what God is saying, and to walk in the things that we understand. In verse 4, John says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. And I don't know if you're familiar with commentaries on Revelation, but there are some really strange things out there. And I want to tell you that John is writing to seven literal churches. These are literal letters. These are literal churches. They're not seven church ages. They're not seven mysterious, nebulous ideas about the church. These are literal, real, tangible, geographical locations. These are actual congregations with human leaders, everyday struggles like you and I have, victories and compromises, defeats, wrestlings over truth, defeats along the way, and a Lord Jesus Christ who is actively involved in the lives of his people. And John says that this book is meant for these churches, and we, by virtue of being a church, are task as readers of the book to take these things to heart and to apply, to know them and to apply them for our good and for the glory of the one that we serve. Notice verses 4 and 5. This salutation comes from the entire Godhead. God is mentioned in his eternality. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. From the Spirit and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Stop just a second. If you're like me, you're thinking, what in the world? 
Why did you say that, John? Well, let's start with what it obviously doesn't mean. It obviously doesn't mean that there are seven Holy Spirits floating around in the world. That's not what the Bible teaches. If you realize that John is telling us something about the Godhead, God in his eternality, verse 5, speaks of Jesus, the faithful witness, Christ in his faithfulness, then this description of the Spirit is his perfection as he executes the will of God on earth. From the seven spirits, this number seven is the number of perfection who are before his throne. And so that is what is significant here. It is the Holy Spirit who is in his perfection as a divine person and who perfectly, absolutely, and completely executes the will of God from the throne of God. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. This is very, very important because he is about, Jesus is about to speak seven letters to seven churches, and he is the faithful witness. What does that mean? It means what he sees is accurate. What he says about a church is what is true, and he's called the firstborn from the dead. Another statement that might need a little clarification, Jesus is not the first one resurrected. Elijah raised a few dead people. Jesus himself raised Lazarus. This term firstborn doesn't mean the first resurrected. It means it, it was a term that was applied to, for, for instance, the firstborn son in a family. It is a position of honor and glory whereby this person in the family would receive all the inheritance from the Father, and that is the term that's used here of Jesus Christ. He is the, the firstborn, the honored one, the one to whom the inheritance would go. And what is his inheritance? You and I, those who are his, who Isaiah said he would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. God's, Christ's inheritance is the people that he has redeemed for himself. And then John goes on to call him the ruler over the king's of the earth. I love Isaiah's prophecy of Messiah where he said, of the increase of his government there shall be no end. Jesus Christ is now and will always be the ruler over this planet. Even though it does not appear like it sometimes, it is in fact the truth according to the word of God. And John, as he says these things, as these things are revealed to John, it wells up inside his heart, this, this worship. And out of the, in, in verse 5, it just flows out of him. He says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to our God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I, I like it when truth grabs hold of a heart like that, don't you? <laughs> and John calls us by virtue of the Spirit's leading in his life. He says these words in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Now watch this. Watch how many times it speaks of a world event. And every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him. Who's he talking about? Israel. Even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. His coming is going to be a catastrophic world event. Verse 8, 
God himself begins to speak again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet, because why? Because the people reading this are Greeks, they read that language. And then he translates that, he says, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty, regardless of how out of control things look on this earth, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He not only created the world, he will bring it to his end. He not only was at the beginning, he will be at the end, and he is in the middle where we are, beloved. So regardless of what's happening on earth, this central person of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in front of us now in his exalted position, and we have the privilege of being able to see it and understand it as John saw it. I will tell you again, though, that John, was, who was Jesus' closest friend during his earthly ministry, who sat next to him at the Passover meal, who had this private conversation leaning back against Jesus as he wanted to know who was going to betray. John sees Jesus like he has never seen him before. And what he is about to see absolutely floors him. In verse 9, he says this, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. John was exiled because of his violation of Rome's policy that he was preaching one God and that Caesar wasn't God, Jesus Christ was God. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Why? Why does God, why does Jesus reveal himself first with this voice that is like a loud trumpet? Well, you need to understand that these readers, the first readers, who would receive this book are Jewish readers. And in Exodus 19, they had this account of God when he spoke to his people. Listen to this, verse 16 of Exodus 19. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of a trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. This is the people standing at the foot of, of Mount Sinai, and this, this sight and sound is what they're hearing. And verse 19 says, And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. <laughs> You see, Jewish readers would understand that, that God, the God of the Old Testament, announces his words with this loud blast of a trumpet. And thus, the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, his voice is like a loud trumpet. It communicates that God has something to say to his people and that this voice that they're about to hear, is the, who is the voice of Jesus Christ, is in fact the voice of Yahweh Almighty God. And the volume with which he speaks makes his voice unmistakable and undeniable and unavoidable, so that all his people will hear 
and heed what he has to say. He is, it is a voice that is preeminent in its presence. He also is a voice that is preeminent in its jurisdiction. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Again, this, this, he says it again, the, the Greek first and last alphabet communicate that his life is all-encompassing. He sees the end from the beginning because he is the end and the beginning. He is all and all. The book of Colossians says that in him all things consist. This world exists because Jesus Christ wills for it to exist, beloved. If he stopped for a second willing that it would exist, it would self-destruct. Because the word of God says that in him it consists. It is within his jurisdiction that all the world exists would exist. And it, he is preeminent in authority as well. Verse 11 says, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. John is the one who is taking orders from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church, by the way, beloved, does not take its cues from the denomination. It does not take its cues from the culture in which it lives. When God speaks, the church is to follow the voice of her master. Can I get an amen to that? Secondly, we see Jesus as revealed as omni present. That's, that's an English word with a Latin prefix. Omni means all, omnipresent. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Later in verse 20, we're going to understand that the lampstands represent the church. Why? Because Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Even in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah, the lampstand stands for the light of God that goes forth from God's people. And so here we see the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of all seven churches simultaneously. That is why when we pray to him right here today, every other church on the planet is praying to him as well. He, he hears our voices. He is in all the churches simultaneously, moving among them, present and involved. Thirdly, he is majestic. Look at verse 13. He is clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. In their culture, this is a description of majesty, of one in a long flowing robe. And when royalty is present, all attention, all respect, all reverence is given to that person. He is majestic. Verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. This is a picture of his absolute holiness. Isaiah 118 mentions both snow and wool as being white and pure, respectively. And Jesus here is pictured in his unblemished holiness. Verse 14, and his eyes like a flame of fire. This is an image of his omniscience. He is all-knowing. His vision with which he observes earth and her inhabitants is pure and eyes like flame of fire. His vision is penetrating and his vision is that before which nothing is hidden. It's easy for us to have hidden sin in our lives because we can easily hide from one another but not from the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ whose vision is pure and penetrating. He is pure in his actions as well. Verse 15 says, His feet were like fine brass 
as if refined in a furnace. Another image here of uh, feet being unhurt by the furnace. Now, what are feet for? Feet are for movement. And so the purity of the movement of the Lord Jesus Christ here is illustrated by the refiner's fire. In the fires, Jesus remains unhurt, unaffected, and unchanged. He is exalted, and he moves in purity and holiness. Whether he is attending to the needs of protecting his people like he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that story in Daniel? Daniel? Daniel. <laughs> Put an extra syllable in there. Daniel, <laughs> where these three guys are thrown into the fire, and when Nebuchadnezzar looks, there's a fourth guy there. That's the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form. So whether he's protecting his people or he is moving against his adversaries, which is the context of the book of Revelation, he is pure in his actions and his movement. Verse 15 speaks of him being completely overwhelming. His voice as the sound of many waters. This is the second time his voice is mentioned, and clearly the Lord wants us to understand and have the posture of servants who are listening to the Lord's voice. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? You don't look at that falls for the first time and look at anything else around you. It is completely overpowering and overwhelming. And it is like that sound, that's what his voice is like. Powerful, distinct, overcoming, distinguishable above all other sounds and demanding of our first priority as we listen. His presence and his voice is overwhelming. And we see the exalted Lord Jesus Christ ruling his church. He had in his right hand, verse 16, 7, stars. Again, picture language. These, these stars are identified for us in verse 20, and I will camp here a little longer next week and explain what this means. But for now, I want you to understand that some of your versions in verse 20 will actually have a marginal reading that speak of the stars as messengers. Most of our translations regard, are, are, render this as angels, but it can just as easily be messengers, and I believe that is, in fact, the better translation. Here's the point. Jesus has these stars in his right hand. In his exalted position, he is ruling his church. He's moving among the candlesticks, and in his right hand are the messengers of his word. They are under his control. They are in his care. They are his possession. They are subservient to his will. They exist to do his bidding. They are subject to his discipline when they do not follow his ways or when they, by virtue of not following, they allow things into the body of Christ that inflict injury or death upon the people of God. You will see those qualities of Jesus as we unfold the letters to the churches. So he is ruling his church. In verse 16, we also see him judging. For out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. There are two words in the Greek language for the swords that a Roman soldier would have carried. Now remember that God is communicating in a way that people will understand. And so the image of a Roman soldier is something these first readers would have understood. And so there, is, there was a small dagger that a soldier carried at his side called Machaira. It was a small one and it was for hand-to-hand -hand combat. There was also a long sword, and that's the word that's used here, rumphaya. 
It was a sword that was the size of a man. It was so heavy that it had a strap around it, where, and it took two hands to wield, and it was hung around the soldier by this strap. And the enemies of Rome called it two mouths because of its devouring capacity. That's the word that's used here for the sword that comes out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus. It is a sword, it is an implement of judgment. It is an implement of discipline and authority. Again, when our son was in Iraq, we were having a phone conversation one day. Technology is a wonderful thing when your child is on the other side of the world in a battle zone. And as a father, I was inquiring as to some of the situations he was facing and how he ensured his own safety. That's what moms and dads do. And so I asked him how he met some of the volatile situations that he found himself in. And his response, I'll never forget, he said, Dad, I have authority to do whatever I deem necessary, even to the ultimate enforcement. Why? Why could he say that with such confidence? For two reasons. One, because of the people who endowed him with that authority and because of the weapons that he wielded. Christ himself, in perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit, has given the Word of God, this double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, as the implement by which all of us will be judged someday. He wields this Word with precision, decisively, and effectively. It is not swung by hands, it comes out his mouth, because he It is a word that he has already spoken. And it is a word by which all humanity will be judged someday. We will all be evaluated by the standard of this book. His word is that which is true and absolute and eternal and unchanging. And his word is that which judges the hearts and intentions, not just our actions, but the heart and the intentions of every person. With this sword, he is coming to purge his churches and to punish his adversaries. In verse 16, John sees his countenance like the sun shining in its strength. Please don't go out today and try to look directly at the sun. You will damage your eyes. You cannot do it. But here John, in this vision, he sees Jesus and he is so bright, he is so glorious that he's, he's doing the best he can to describe what he sees. And he says his countenance is like the sun shining in its strength. And the image here is the glory that he possesses in his exalted state that is overpowering and overbearing and before which nothing is hidden, and before which nothing can stand. It is the word of God that says no one can see God and live. Christ is revealed as glorious. This is why John actually falls down before him as a dead man. He really thinks he's going to die at this point. And I want you to see what Jesus does for John. By the way, John's response is normal. We see throughout the Bible when Men realized they were standing in God's presence. They feared for their lives. The most memorable is probably Isaiah, where he said, Woe is me. I am undone, 
And I'm sure his voice was a little more animated than mine is right now. But he said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I want to say to you, dear ones, that some of us would do well if we would realize who it is that we live in front of, especially when we are sinning, when we are hiding things that we think God is not seeing. He is, he is there. He is the exalted Lord. And when we see Him as He is, there is only one rightful response, and that is to fall down before Him as John does. And I want you to see what Jesus does. He laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. Well, I say to you that fear would be actually an appropriate response before God. The Proverbs teach us to fear God. But Jesus wants us as his covenant people to go one step beyond fear. And that is to realize that as a person who is in covenant relationship with God, it is God himself that reaches down and pulls us out of that fear. He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. What is John's comfort? His comfort is that Jesus is eternal, that he's sovereign, that nothing enters our lives, pleasure or pain that is not first filtered through the throne room of heaven. He's the first and the last. He created all things, and He will bring all things to their designated close. He, he says, I am He who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Do you remember this? He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and if I lay it down, I have authority to take it up again. It's one thing to be raised from the dead. It's another thing to raise yourself from the dead. <laughs> he is the one who was and is and will forever be victorious over death. And he says, I have the keys of Hades and death. What's Hades? It is the place of destruction. Jesus has the keys for that. Listen, if you're not certain of your eternal salvation today, Jesus has the keys of Hades. He can release you from that fear. And you, all you must do is trust that his sacrifice on Calvary was sufficient to bring to satisfy his wrath against you, against your sin, and to bring you into his family. He has the keys of the place of destruction. And it has, he has the keys of death as well. What is death? It is that which is common to all people. Every one of us has an appointment with the undertaker. We do. But the Lord Jesus Christ has the keys that will release us from that fear of death. And death not, does not be, is transformed from an enemy to a mere passageway to the greatest blessing of all eternity. There's nothing greater, of greater comfort for the child of God than to understand who Jesus Christ is. <laughs> he sees the end from the beginning. He himself is the blessed controller of all things. He is, there is never a detail of earth life that does not first pass through him for his permission and his guidance. His plans for earth and her inhabitants are worked out and unfolded in everyday life according to his good and divine purposes. He is the exalted Lord of heaven. His purposes on earth are unchanging. And he has all authority, meaning that he and he alone has the right to make demands 
on the lives of human beings for his own purposes and for his glory. Would you bow your heads with me? I want you to consider this morning who this Lord Jesus Christ is that we've talked about. If you've understood this morning for the first time that Jesus is not just a quaint story in the Bible, but he is the exalted ruler of heaven and earth, then there is only one right response, and that is, just like John did, to fall down before him in full and absolute surrender. It is his eyes that pierce all our words, all our intentions, all our motivations, all our conduct, and reveal who we truly are. He sees you, dear ones. He gave his life for you. And I'm going to invite you right now, if you've seen Christ for the first time this morning and you would like to ask help as to how to have a personal, saving, redeeming relationship with this person, I'm going to ask you to do two things. One is to raise your hand right now. I don't want you to do anything or move, but I want you to raise your hand that, yes, I am surrendering my life to Christ. And at the end of the service, after communion, I would like to meet with you down front and explain how to have a relationship with Christ. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, is there anybody in the room that would say, I want Jesus Christ in my life? I'm surrendering my life right now. Just lift your hand quietly where you are. I've seen him for the first time as who he is, as the exalted Lord of heaven and earth. Christians, are you mindful that there is not one minute detail of your life that escapes his holy sight that someday everything that's hidden will be brought to light and judged by that double-edged sword of his word in both public and private do you worship obey love and adore him as the exalted majestic sovereign eternal victorious authoritative God that he is. You have opportunity as we approach the table of the Lord this morning to order your life before the one who sees it all. Would you take a moment as I pray and as we have a moment of quiet as our elders and deacons are coming forward to just examine your life before him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your loving kindness toward us as we have seen you for who you are. Help us to continue to worship you and to order our lives before you as we come to the table that illustrates your life poured out for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We would just tell you that if you're visiting with us today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to the table of the Lord. We practice an open communion here. And uh, all we ask is that you are certain that you are a born-again person.